In, in Yiddish. All right, in, ladies in, and gentlemen, welcome to Torah Studies. This is our weekly look at the Torah portion. This week's Torah portion is Ki Tisa, and we are in for a treat. We've got talking bulls. We have mount, mountain showdowns, mountain show, showdowns on the mountain, and we have an exploration of the golden calf. There is so much to talk about tonight. We usually start with an insight, an analysis of the Torah portion. Tonight we begin in a bit of a different place. We're starting with the half Torah. We don't always talk about the half Torah, but tonight this is where we start. We're going to get to the Torah portion. Don't worry. It's, it's, uh, it is Torah studies, and we're going to talk about Torah. This is also part of Torah, but we're going to start with the half Torah and then go with the Torah reading. So first, a quick word from our sponsor, joking, a quick word about what the half Torah is. So Haftorah is typically read on Shabbat in synagogue after the main Torah reading. So the Torah scrolls are pulled, Torah scroll or scrolls are pulled out, is pulled out, are pulled out. And a, the section of the week, the weekly section is read. The scroll is then rolled, rolled back up and covered. And out comes the reading of the Haftorah, which is taken from the books of the prophets. Historically, the reason why this happened it's because at a certain a certain point in time, uh, the reading of the Torah became banned um, in public uh, public places. And in order to circumvent the ban, so they couldn't read the five books of Moses, but they found other sections from the books of the prophets that related somewhat to the reading of the Torah. And thus they had that. So even when it was reinstituted, when they were able to read the Torah scroll, once again, we still kept the half Torah and thus we have the double whammy. I hope that made sense. So we're going to begin our conversation with the dramatic story of this week's Haftorah. The Haftorah comes from the book of Kings. And this week's, this week's Haftorah comes from the book of Kings. And it talks about the story of Elijah, Elijah the prophet. Um, everyone knows Elijah, right? Every, you got to love Elijah. He's, oh, Elio, right? No, but every, right, Elio, Anavi? Elio, you're a prophet? Maybe. All right, good. Maybe. Chabad, non-prophet. Elijah, prophet. Good. Now, here's the deal. Yeah, I do what I can. So, um, Elijah. Elijah is famous for coming around every Passover, right? At the Seder, we have a cup of Elijah. Elijah comes to the bris mila, to the circumcisions. Elijah, Elijah, he makes his rounds. Okay. Elijah was also one of the greatest Jewish prophets who ever lived and lived at a time of great controversy. The king of the Jewish people at the time when Elijah lived was a fellow named Ahav. In English, we call him Ahab. Ahav or Ahab. This was a guy. So this king was married to a queen and his wife was Ezebel, a.k.a. Jezebel. So we have Ahav and Ezebel or Ahab and Jezebel, depending on your pronunciation, same couple, same power couple. Well, Turns out that Ezebel, Jezebel, and Ahav, Ahab, turns out that they were really into the idols. They love them some idols. They could not get, that was a little Southern right there, I'm just going to say for myself. They love them some idols. Like they, they love, perfect time, no, perfect time. And Linda, you're right. They loved worshiping idols. Their go-to idol, the Baal. Oh, did they love Baal. This is like Baal Shem Tov is good. The Baal idol, not good, not good. The Baal idol was all sorts of corruption. 
By the way, the Baal idol is also referenced in the Torah when the daughters of the Midianites, the Moabites, the Midianites, whatever, when they were enticing the Jewish men after the story of Balaam and they were pulling out the Baal to worship. That was the Baal. There was also the Asherah. The Asherah. Oh, the Asherah was a tree. It was a, it was a tree that was worshipped. Unbelievable. Anyway, they said, let's worship this on the count of tree. No, no one, no one said that. So these were the idols of choice in the kingdom, in that ancient kingdom, Ahab and Jezebel. They were all into the Baal, all into the Asherah. And in fact, because Elijah was prophesying, and one of the roles of a prophet is to like admonish the people and say, hey, guys, this is not what God wants you to do. I got communication. God says, no, don't do that. So the king and queen did not like Elijah. They wanted to kill him. Ahab tried to kill him. Elijah had to hide. Elijah told Ahab that he's gonna that there's going to be a famine in the kingdom because of his evil deeds and the idolatry. And then Ahab, wanted, the king, wanted to quiet all of the prophets, and including Elijah and the others. There were many prophets that lived then. And so he... He and his wife were trying to hunt down and murder all the Jewish prophets. The whole thing was bananas, absolutely bananas. And I say bananas in like a terrible way. I mean, I'm not saying a terrible way, but it was just terrible stuff. So anyway, all this is going on, all this drama. And at a certain point in time, Elijah challenges the king to a showdown, just an old-fashioned idol showdown. And he says like this, basically says that, I'm speaking on behalf of God, the Jewish God, monotheism. You're speaking on behalf, you're into idols. You got all this stuff, all this Bubba Mises. Let's have a showdown. We'll go into the mountain, Mount Carmel. Let's go. We'll go to the mountain. You bring your prophets. I'll come. I'll represent you. You, you bring all the spiritualists of the Baal. I'll represent Hashem. And we're going to do a contest. Let's read how this contest unfolds. So open up your booklets to, to the... Tisa reading. If you have the book, if you have the booklets, either way, it's good. We're on page 97. 97. I'm going to share my screen and we're going to read this. I'm going to read this inside because there's a lot of verses and I'm just, I, I feel, uh, I feel too guilty assigning this to anybody. Um, like, oh, hey, read all this. Sure. Okay, so I'll do it. I'll tell no guilt, no guilt. All right, this comes from the Book of Kings, as you can see. Book of Kings, what is this weird shape? Um, uh, ch chapter 18, verse 21 through 29. All right, and Elijah drew near to all the people. Elijah approaches the peeps and said, until when are you hopping between two ideas? Stop hopping. That's kind of like, how long are you going to sit on the fence? How long will you dance at two weddings? You know, that's all that, all that good stuff. Yeah, if the Lord is God, go after him. And if the Baal, then go after him. In other words, it's almost like he's saying, you know what, just, just choose. Just make a choice. You know, even if it's the idol. You're living a double, he's telling the people, you're living a double life. So you go to, you, you worship God, and then like in your spare time, you also get a little Baal action going. It's like, all right, let's just make a choice. You know, it's also even better sometimes if you just choose the bowel and just, you know, instead of living a double life. Not you can't really say that, but that's kind of what he's saying. All right. And the people did not answer him a word. I guess clearly he had struck a chord. So they're not answering. Verse 22. And Elijah spoke to the people. 
I've remained the prophet to God by myself. In other words, I'm the only guy left. And the prophets of the Baal are 450 men. And let them give us two bulls. In other words, let the Baal people choose two bulls. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood. But fire they shall not put in. I will prepare one bull and I will put it on the wood. The fire and fire will I not place. I don't know why they translate will I not place. Who does that? Who speaks like that? Right. I will not place the fire. Basically, what's happening, just to set this up, they're creating altars, right? They're creating altars, putting the wood, putting the animal, but no fire. And they're going to pray. This is the contest. They're going to pray, and whoever can bring down miraculously the fire, that's how we know who it is. All right, let's, let's jump in. And you will call, this is all Elijah's conception of what this showdown is going to look like. And you will call in the name of your deity, and I will call in the name of Hashem. And it will be the God that will answer with fire. He is God. In other words, whichever animal goes up in fire, that's the one that's legit. And all the people answered and said, the thing is good. Now, suddenly they speak. You know, he says, guys, choose a path. You want the Baal, you want Hashem. And they're like, oh, they're not saying anything. Then he's like, we'll do a contest. Oh, we love the contest. Everyone loves a good contest. First reality show in history. All right, here, pay-per-view. Here we go. Let's continue. Verse 26. So, sorry, verse 25. And Elijah said to the prophets of the Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. He lets them go first. Since you are, you, since you are the majority, right, 450 against one, and call the name of your deity and, and fireplace not. Fireplace not. Okay, don't put the fire. They took the bull that he had given them, that he gave them, and prepared it. And they called the name of the Baal from the morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no answer, and they hopped on the altar that they had made. And it was at noon that Elijah scoffed at them, and he said he was mocking them. Listen to this, so sarcastic. Elijah, who thought he had such a sarcastic side? And he said, call with a loud voice, for he's a god. Like, right? Isn't he a god? Perhaps he's talking, or he's pursuing enemies, or he's on a journey. Perhaps he is sleeping and will awaken. You probably have to shout louder. So they called out with a loud voice and gashed themselves, as was their custom, with swords and lances, until blood gushed on them. Yeah. And as, and as the afternoon passed, and they feigned to prophecy until the time of the sacrifice of the evening offering, and as the afternoon passed, and they painted the prophecy until the time of the sacrifice of the human offering, and there was no voice and no answer, and no one was listening. It was ineffective. So they went first. They tried. They hopped. They danced. They shouted. They screamed. They gashed. They drew blood. Nothing happened. No fire garnished. Listen to the gamesmanship, the showmanship next from the, from the other side, from Elijah's side. So they tried. They failed. No fire. No dice. Next, text 1B. I'm going to continue. And Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So first of all, he draws the crowd closer. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the torn down, the torn down altar of God. Elijah took 12 stones, corresponding to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of God came, saying, Israel shall be your name. He built the stones into an altar in the name of God, and he made a trench. Listen to this. He made a trench as great as would contain two of seed. It's a big trench around the altar. So he creates this trench, this ditch around the altar. And he arranged the wood and he cut up the bull and placed it upon the wood. And he said, verse 34, fill me four pitchers of water. Look at the gamesmanship. This is unbelievable. He said, fill up four pitchers of water and pour them on the burnt offerings and on the wood. Are you with me? What he's going to do here? He needs to produce fire. So what's he doing? Pre-dousing everything in water to make it that much more complicated. You with me on this? Okay. And he said, repeat it. He repeated it. And he said, do it a third time. Three times they fill up four pitchers of water and they pour, they douse the wood, they douse everything. They did it a third time. And the water went around the altar and also the trench 
he filled with water. So there's water everywhere, water for days. This is like a magician saying, see, nothing up my sleeve, right? There's no fire, no secret fire. We've just doused everything with water. Let's continue, 36. And it was when the evening sacrifice was offered that Elijah the prophet came near and said, God, if there's any time you're listening to me, listen to me now, hook me up, please. All right, that's my paraphrase. The Lord, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And at your word have I done all these things. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. And this people shall know that you are the Lord God and you have turned their hearts backward. In other words, Elijah says basically, Hook up a brother. And the fire, 38, and the fire of God fell, came down from heaven, and consumed the burnt offerings and the wood and the stones and the earth and the water that was in the trench, it licked up. Evaporation. Yeah, it, that water goes, sizzles out. And all the people saw and fell on their faces and they said, Hashem hu alakim, Hashem hu We say this on Yom Kippur at the end. Seven times they said it twice. Hashem, 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 the Lord is God, the Lord is God. And thus ends the dramatic showdown on Mount Carmel. That, this happened 2,800 years ago. One of the most dramatic moments in Jewish history. A moment that clarified, right, clarified the truth of Hashem and the falsehood of idols. And that's the story. And we read it every, every year. This Torah portion, Kitisa. We read this story of Elijah and the Baal prophets and the showdown 450 against one, trying to bring the fire. And we read about the sanctification of God's name. Make sense so far? Yes. Now, why do we read it as this week's Haftarah? Why? Well, you can say bull, bull, right? Because cow, golden calf and bull. Okay. But I, I think conceptually, what happens in this week's Torah portion, the golden calf, which was an act of idol worship. So it's all about idol worship, and this half Torah clarifies, don't serve idols, they don't work. Don't serve idols, they can't create fire. I mean, it's kind of like that, right? Sort of, right? It's false, fake news. Okay, good. So that's the connection. The Torah portion talks about idolatry, and the half Torah talks about idolatry, and, and one man's fight against the culture. Okay, good. However, however, there is a very enigmatic, in fact, Bizarre medrash, midrash. Take a look at text number two. Take a. I'm going to read this one as well. It's a long one. I'm going to read these. All right, text number two. Take a look, see please, at page 101. This will be the tale of the talking bulls. Yes, you heard me correct. The tale of the talking bulls. When Elijah said to the worshippers of the Baal, "Choose for yourselves the bull, the one bull, and prepare it first, since you are the majority." Yeah, the 450 prophets of the Baal. Oh, and the 450 prophets of the Asherah, who were not involved necessarily in this uh, showdown, but there were 450 prophets of the Asherah. That was the tree worshipers. Um, they gathered to take a bull, but they were unable to move it from its place. Imagine that. They were trying to take up. They're like, oh, hey, we found the bull. Can't schlep a bull, right? Can't move a bull that doesn't want to be moved, apparently. So what did Elijah do? Listen to this. What did Elijah do? He said to the prophets, Choose two twin bulls who pasture together and cast lots on them, one for God, one for the Baal. Okay? Instead of choosing one bull that doesn't want to move, choose two bulls that are twin bulls and then draw the lottery. And the lottery should say, Lashem, like one, one for God, one for the Baal. 
That's it. All right, well, let's continue. The prophets of the Baal did so, choosing one bull for themselves and one for Elijah. So they assigned this one for the Baal, this one for Elijah. Elijah's bull followed Elijah readily. Well, that was easy. But the prophets of the Baal and Asherah were unable to move theirs. Again, they were still unable to move this bull. And it was a new bull now, but they weren't able to move it until Elijah told it to go with them. So Elijah's like, hey, bull, we got to get the show on the road. I got this. We got this. We got the... Um, yeah, no bull, bull, right? We got, we got the, uh, right? We got this, the, the, um, the bleachers set up. Everyone's waiting. Like, we got the show. We got the cameras. We got the lights. Let's make this happen. So Elijah said, no, let's go. The bull responded to him, talking bulls. The bull responded to him, my fellow bull and I came from one womb. You with me? You see what's going on here? This bull that was assigned to the Baal says, hey, let me break this down for you, Elijah. This is why I'm upset. I'm not moving, and here's why. Because my, this other bull and I, us, we were from the same womb, from the same cow, and we pastured in the same fields. Now he goes up as God's sacrifice, and God's name will be sanctified through him. Why must I go as a sacrifice to the Baal and anger my creator? He's got the good deal. We were twins. Why is he going to go to Hashem and I go for I idols? It's not fair. That's not fair. Un this is the fetching bull, the complaining bull, the fetching bull, a, uh, uh, a new production on Broadway by the Midrash. Elijah responded, bull, bull. Look, look, bullichke, bull, bull. Kleinike, bullichke, little bull. Do not worry. Do not worry. Bull, bull. It's in Hebrew. It's power, power. Bull, bull. Do not worry. Go with them. He's, he's, he's like, he's um, counseling. I don't know what he, he's talking and the, the bull through this, through this uh, moment of anxiety. He says, bull, don't worry. Go with them so that they will not have an excuse for why their sacrifice was not accepted. In other words, if you don't go, then they're going to say, well, show's over. We don't have a bull. So he's like, no, no, don't, don't you got to go. Don't worry. You got to go. And then he says, this is the line. This is going to be the whole class today. The whole class. Just this Elijah to the bull. Elijah is speaking to the bull, and that's the main idea of this class. Elijah's words to a talking bull. All right. Just as God's name will be sanctified by God, accepting your fellow bull, your twin bull from me, his name will be also sanctified by the Baal not accepting you as a sacrifice. Although there's a lot of brackets there, but I'm just going to say without the brackets, just like God's name is going to be sacrificed through him, it'll also be sacrificed. Sorry, sacrificed. Just as God's name will be sanctified through him, it'll also be sanctified through you. So you're wondering, you're you're upset. You got the the short, you got the short end of the deal, whatever the expression raw is. Raw deal. Raw deal. You got the huh? short end of the stick and the raw deal at the same time. You're going to say, he got my twin brother, my twin brother bull. He's being offered as a sacrifice to Hashem. And me, I got to go to the idol worshippers. Are you kidding me? Right? Can we do a, re a redo over here with this with this lottery situation? Uh, a recount. Yeah, let's, let's do this again. Like, can we choose another bull here? So Elijah says to him, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Take it easy, take it easy. Hashem's name will be, will be sanctified through him and for, through you. The bull responded, the bull, it's not over yet. More dialogue. The bull responded, if this is your advice, then I swear that I will not move from here until you give me over to them. In other words, I hear you. I still don't like it. If only if you really insist and if you hand me over to them, then I'll go. Therefore, 
Um, Elijah, therefore, thereupon, I would say Elijah handed the bull to the prophets of the Baal and Asherah, and thus the bull went on his way. And that's what happened. So I'm going to ask, oh, by the way, there's another text here that I don't know if I want to read. Text three, the Radvaz. Maybe we should read it. Uh, maybe. The Radvaz explains, the Radvaz was a really great skull. Radvaz explains the bulls weren't actually talking. But it's kind of like a behind-the-scenes analysis of what was going on spiritually at that time. Not that the bull was actually talking, but that the, 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 the energy of the bull was not feeling great about going toward the Baal. Um, and here's how he explains it. It is known that every person, every animal, every tree, every stalk of grain has a life-giving spiritual energy and a personal ministering angel in heaven. Kind of aligns with our meditation from Sinai class. Anyway, about the spiritual energy within everything. The bull, this, bull's, this bull's ministering angel right, the one that was slaughtered for the Baal, went to Elijah and said, we are two bulls that came from the same womb and ate from the same trough. Why give the prophet of the Baal and the, and the Asherah the right to choose one to serve his creator and one to anger his creator? It's not fair. What, what proves so? So that, so it's the angel that went to Elijah, not really the bull that spoke, but the energy of the bull, the soul of the bull. Okay, fine, maybe that's better. Uh, what, what proves this interpretation of the Medrash? The fact that the bull speaking understands that his fellow will be sanctifying God's name and the fact that he understands Elijah's argument of his own potential for sanctifying God's name. A bull does not understand these concepts. Clearly, it is the bull's ministering angel speaking and not the actual bull. So that's what the Ravah says. Either way, it's, it's, I think this text is here just so that we're not like so bothered by talking bulls that we can't follow the rest of the class. If you don't want to think about a talking bull, think about the energy of the soul of the bull. Either way, this is the dialogue, the behind-the-scenes dialogue, right? Just to be very clear here. Elijah says, once and for all, we're going to prove that Hashem is legit, and idols are false. So the way we're going to do this is we're going to have a showdown on Mount Carmel. Top of the mountain, everyone's going to gather, 450 prophets and me. They're going to bring a bull. I'm going to bring a bull. Everything's going to be ready there and here. No fire. Whoever can elicit the fire from on high is the one who's legit. They try, they fail. He tries, he succeeds. And thus it's proven. The bull that had to go on that side, the side of the bow, was not happy until Elijah said, don't worry, you're going to sanctify God's name. And now my question is, how did the bull sanctify God's name? What does it mean? At the end of the day, the bull was being offered, was being brought in by the Baal people. Think about it, right? At the end of the day, they were still, you know, they, they were still involved with that bull. So, right, the Baal bull was still had a, still, still had a negative connotation. Yeah, Elijah's bull was going to prove that Hashem is legit. And their bull not working, I guess, the fire not working was going to prove that it wasn't legit. But still, that, that, that bull was chosen for the idol worshippers. You can kind of relate to the bull's frustration. A little bit, no? Yeah. Bull could be frustrated. I think it's fair. He's still second foot. That's the question. The question is, at the end of the day, yeah, he's like, no, Hashem, you're gonna, you, you're also gonna sanctify God's name. The fact that it's not gonna work is gonna sanctify God's name. The bull's like, I don't know, it still feels like I got the round of the deal. You, you would imagine, huh? Got to die anyway, right? All right? But like, it still feels like it's second fiddle. So, what was Elijah's real answer? To understand this, this is the the question in the haftar. To really understand this the depth of what Elijah was saying and the depth of the demonstration on Mount Carmel, we need to go back to our Torah portion, which talks about the sin of the golden calf. And we're going to ask the famous question, famous question that everybody asks, 
which is how could they have committed this sin? How could they? 40 days prior, they were standing at Sinai and they heard God say, I'm the Lord your God. They heard God say, don't have any other gods. Don't worship other gods. Don't bow down to other gods. And 40 days later, there they are dancing the horror Havana, golden calf, uh, right? <laughs> Around the golden calf. What is going on? How is that possible? What's, what is happening? There's an incredible, there's an incredible, what is it? Oh, oh, so Linda's giving the pragmatic answer, which I don't, which, which I don't disagree with, by the way. And Linda's saying they're human beings. By the way, I also, I, I, I agree with that. In fact, sometimes I tell, I tell people, I'm like, my only question, I also have a question. My question is, why did it take 40 days? Right. I mean, like, you know, we know how we are. We're like inspired one day. The next day, it's like, yeah, whatever. Right. So it's like uh, yesterday I was so inspired. Oh, well, good for yesterday. But like it happens. That's uh, that's how that's how life is. Huh. And then I had to take a nap. They're like, all right, it is what it is. But but the Talmud gives another answer. Talmud is a very interesting answer. This is going to be a super trippy answer. You know what? Elio. You up to reading? reading? All right, but read it nice and loud. Um, I'm going to pull it up on the screen. This is 104. Okay, this is a key text. This is a key text, and it's super trippy. All right, go for it. The Jewish people at that time were not really capable of committing that deed, namely the sin of the golden calf. As the verse states, who would give that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and keep all my commandments? that it might be good for them and for their children forever. Uh, just to point out that verse from Deuteronomy, who would give that they, that's one of those translations that you could read that a thousand times and the verse will still not make sense in the translation. What it means is that based on the experience at Sinai, it should have been that the people would always fear God and do the commandments forever. It should have, la- the, the, the inspiration should have lasted. Continue, please. Why then did they commit their sin? So that when the Jewish people sin as a whole, we can tell them, look at the community who sinned with the golden calf. Interesting. The Talmud says, how could, they, the, sorry, the Talmud makes a statement. Doesn't The Talmud opens with a statement. The Jewish people were not really capable of the sin of the golden calf. So then how did it happen? It happened in order to give the Jewish people a a role model so that if the jewish people sin as a whole we can tell them look at the community you sin with the golden calf in other words really two levels two levels there's multiple levels of understanding that's what the talmud says what does it mean i'm going to give you multiple angles on this one angle is that you can tell a, a community or even an individual who sins say look you feel bad about your sin okay sure but you have to also you got to cut yourself some slack also because you know it's sin is normal it's not it, even the Jewish people then sinned, right? Even they sinned, they sinned then, even right after hearing God's word, right after Sinai. So it's normal and it's okay. See, part of this, this what could be a stigma is like, I did something really bad. I'm terrible. I'm, I'm horrible. I'm a monster. And then that just compounds it. But knowing that it's normal and then getting over it, not in a way of like, I sinned like no big deal, but okay, I sinned, let me fix it. But at least I don't beat myself up to the point that I can't recover from that. Right. So that is helpful. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. Because I can I can deal with the stuff if I if I don't have another compound layer of like freaking out about the stuff. So, yes, I messed up. But you know what? They also messed up. So like no one's perfect. 
Let's repeat. And that gives, leads to the second point, which is they were able to recover by and large. A few, some, some were, some perished in the aftermath of the golden calf, but by and large, the people survived and they got a second chance and they were able to recover and all that good stuff. So the message also is for the potential, you know, individual that also commits a sin or the community who sins is like, okay, look, there's a way to rebound. There's a way to recover. It's been done before. It can be done again. Does that make sense? But let me explain what the, what the Talmud is really saying. Talmud's saying that that generation really on paper should not have sinned. Why did they sin? It's almost like, I'm going to fill in some words. It's almost like God orchestrated the sin to allow an opening for future generations who would sin that they should have the opportunity to see a role model of what it looks like to mess up and recover. Does that make sense? Oh, okay. Sort yeah, of. It makes sense. God orchestrated. Again, I'm, I'm reading into it a little bit, but this is the way it's kind of understood is God orchestrated. Yeah, God orchestrates the sin in order for there to be the tshuva, the return. And that is a role model, if you will, that is creating a role model for a template for what, if, if that were to happen again, when that happens again. Yeah, but what about the people who died? Yeah, yeah. good. They were not the role model. Maybe that's also a role model. Role model is if you go too far, you might go off the cliff. Listen, it is what it is, right? I mean, sometimes you just go too far. Money. The only thing that I see the value of that is it shows that you can always come back. Right. Because that way you're more like a objective life, you know, instead of just you're in the program. Right. So Marnine is saying that the value in this is to show that that you can that you can come back, yeah. which is good. In other words, it's good to know that others have been able to recover from this mistake in the past. If you see someone who was in your predicament facing your challenge and they were able to overcome, good, it gives you hope. I can also overcome, right? Makes sense, right? Human psychology. So Hashem almost creates a situation of sin and recovery so that we should have that as a template and as a role model for all future times. Yeah, hold on one second, yeah. Emphasize also what somebody else said. It, it seems, but it seems this, to be punished for. It. We're still being punished. I mean, we don't. That like one. That's the big. Sin. You're saying we're still getting punished. I don't know. Life is pretty decent. I did, but Overall, I'm not feeling it. I'm just saying. Life is pretty what? I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. Right now, with black and white cookies, I feel like I feel like we're blessed. Yeah. And it also seems like that takes away free will. If a, if a son commanded a thing, you're going to send it. Yeah. Good, good, good. good. So, Elio's, I'm going to repeat the questions. I'll repeat the question. Elio's asking, Elio's asking if, um, if this is the case that God is orchestrating this in order to, to create the template for, you know, uh, um, um, error and correction. Well, that sounds like free choice was sacked from them. But that's what really the Talmud is saying. I don't know how else to read that. The Talmud is saying they weren't, they, they, they shouldn't have sinned. So why did they? To open up a path for future, for, for, for others. I mean, that's literally what it says. Listen, I, I, I'm, I, don't, I don't know that I have to justify it. I just feel like I'm presenting a Talmudic statement. So you can take it for what it is. I, we still have a lot, a lot more to, to, to traverse with this. But yeah, Richard. Yeah, quick yes. question. Yes. Uh, did this, this template not... Uh... Be, be formed with Adam and Eve, the fall and the recovery. Yeah, in fact, the commentaries point out that these are very, these stories parallel each other. One universal and one uh, particular. 
right? The story of Adam and Eve is for all humanity, and 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 for uh, uh, golden calf is is a Jewish story, right? So maybe we need two origin stories. It works. <laughs> two huh? Universal in particular? Yeah, I don't think I don't. Yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good point. I don't I don't hear it as a question. I hear it as a as a parallel story. Um, but here's the deal. Take a look at Rashi 4b. Take a look at Rashi, uh, page 105. And I'm going to read Rashi. It's a very short little Rashi, little itty bitty Rashi. He says, the sin was mandated by God. Oh, it's not even me who's reading into it. It's literally Rashi. Turns out Rashi says this very clearly. Rashi says that the sin was mandated by God. Ma mandated by God. That means free choice was taken away. I, there's no other way to read that. To give people the opportunity to do tshuva. So the simple way of so the simple way of understanding it. So I want to give you now two ways of understanding this. This Rashi. You ready? To, to, so we had a few different ideas, but now I'm going to give you two more ways of understanding Rashi. I'm going to keep it up here on the screen and keep it keep it in front of you for a second. The sin was. I'm going to read this again. The sin was mandated by God. The sin of the golden calf was mandated by God. To give people the opportunity to do tshuva. One, one way of understanding that is, to, as I've been saying, is to give people in the future the opportunity to do tshuva. If we don't open up that path, no one else can walk down on it. And I understand Adam and Eve, but a particular Jewish path, Torah and Mitzvot, 613. So how do we know that we have the opportunity to do tshuva, to recover, to, to come back after hitting bottom? How do we know that that's possible? So this is the story. This is our, this is our template. This is like how we know that it's possible because look at them. They messed up severely, and they came back. But not everybody who messes up severely comes back. And that happened in that story as well. And that happened in that story as well. Not everybody came back. Right, 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 but right. it's possible. Under the right circumstances, it's possible. It's not necessarily just because one hits a bottom doesn't mean that they're done forever. There's still a chance. Now, there's a, a lot of it is the work. A lot of it is circumstance. There's a lot of factors. But the point is, this story of golden calf and this historic portion opens up a door, opens up a window, opens up a perspective that perhaps otherwise is not seen. I'm just making sure that everybody's muted as long as we're not taking questions just so it's not noise in the background. So again, it's the idea of opening up a door, a pathway for others to be able to walk down knowing that there's a role model who did it before or others who did it before. That's one way of understanding it. But I want to share with you another way of understanding it. And this is the way that the Rebbe advocates understanding this Rashi. And I'm going to read it one more time, right here, text 4b. The sin was mandated by God to give people the opportunity to do tshuva, not only future generations, but to give those people the opportunity to do tshuva. In other words, there's a, there's a famous idea that when we do tshuva, when we come back, when we return, we can go higher than had we never strayed, right? Coming back after straying could be even a greater experience than having never strayed before. Yeah. Yeah, the Talmud says, but Makim Shabali Shuvaindim in the place, in the right, exactly in the place where um where um what's going on over here? In the place where um Bali Shuva stand, those that have returned stand, not even perfect Sadiq can stand there. Why? Why? Because, well, we're going we're gonna to define the why in a second. So before we get to the why, let's understand this. That 
this, the, 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 the Talmud is saying, what Rashi is saying is that the sin was mandated by God to give the people an opportunity to do tshuva. They couldn't attain the status of a returnee having not strayed. They couldn't be, a re, they couldn't be rebounders had they, not hit the, had, had they not hit the ground, had they not hit the floor. So you have to hit the floor. You have to hit bottom before you can climb back up. So that's why they, God orchestrated the sin in order to allow them the opportunity to bounce back from sin. Paul, jump in. Okay, so, but when Hashem sees what the people have done, he says to Moses, I'm going to annihilate them. Right. So if that's contradictory. If the sin was mandated by Hashem, why would Hashem said, look what they're doing. I'm going to annihilate them. God wanted, no, it's a great question, but the, uh, one thing is for sure, the Talmud knew all those verses also, and the Talmud, the Talmud also knows that Moses is the one who pushed to open that door, so God wants to show us the template of how it's going to happen, just because you hit bottom doesn't mean you're magically going to rebound, you have to fight for it, because the door has to look like it's closed, God has to say the door is closed, don't even try to open it. And then the human being led by Moses has to push hard to throw that door open, which is what happens in the story. It's a great question. And the, the answer, I think the answer is, or one, or one answer at least is, that it's modeling the idea that it has to come from us. It can't come from outside. It can't come extrinsically. If we're the ones that mess up, the repair, the return has to come from us. It can't come from someone else saying, here it is, because that's not real recovery. Real recovery doesn't happen from somewhere else. Real recovery has to happen from inside. That's the only way it happens. Otherwise, it's not actually real. It's not, it's not authentic. Authentic has to come from, from, from the bottom up, not from the top down. So God can't say, oh, you messed up. Here's, here's a golden path. That, that never fixed anything. That never fixed anything. It has to, God has to say, you know what? It's closed. That's what really makes it feel like bottom, right? It's closed. Don't even try to open the door. You're not, never going to happen. It's not going to work. Anyway, I, we have to move on because we have so much to get to. But I, it's, it's a Talmudic piece that's very important. But, you know, at, at some point, it's also good to, to move on. So what's the point over here? That the Talmud is telling us, yeah, the Talmud is saying that, um, that God orchestrates, essentially, the sin of the golden calf to open up the path of tshuva. And as the Rebbe says, it's opening up not just for others to learn that tshuva is possible, that, re that return is possible, but even for those individuals themselves, God puts them in a position of sin in order that they should experience the, the, the power of the rebound, which begs the question, so what is the power of rebound? But before we do that, let's read text number six, where the Rebbe shares this insight, and I'm going to read this quickly inside. This is page 106. The deeper dimension of the concept of the opportunity to do tshuva is not just for later generations of penitent sinners, as we would have thought. Rather, that the Jews of that time would be able to reach the great heights of tshuva, of return. Tshuva is not something a person can do as an initial choice, just the opposite. As the mission states, one who says, I will sin with the intent to do tshuva is not given the opportunity to do tshuva. It is only after one has God protect us, fallen and committed a sin that they can and ought do tshuva. So in other words, you can't intentionally you can't intentionally do a sin in order to rebound. It's like, I'm going to hit rock bottom in order to rebound. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. Sorry. Because, no, that's darn. There goes the strategy, right? So it has to happen. So God orchestrates it where, you know, sets them up and whatever it is in a way that they don't go into it thinking about the rebound. They just go into it thinking about the sin. 
And, and, and thus, the, re, the sin is a real sin. We talked about the Sunday, a couple of coffee. The sin is a real sin. The rebound is a real rebound. The bottom is a bottom. The up is the up. Everything is, is, uh, is the extreme the way it needs to be. And that is the power of sin and teshuva. So in other words, the people, had they not sinned, would be in a status of tzaddikim. They would have been perfect. They got the Torah. They didn't sin. They're serving God. All is good. And that sounds great, but it's like, uh, still mediocre. It's through sin that you can rebound even higher than before. And the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean that through sin and shuva you can rebound higher than before? How can you go higher than it's not? How can you go higher than perfection? Perfection is perfection. Like, what is this, extra credit? Extra credit because I messed up? What does that mean? I want to share with you one way of understanding this. This is going to be very powerful, I think very powerful and very deep. Um, Okay, Richard, do you want to jump in on something? Yeah, I, I do. I, I mean, I always heard, could be wrong, obviously, because it, it kind of goes against what you're saying, that God did, that God actually did give them a chance for tshuva, because right after the golden calf, the Mishkan was built. So he said, here's an opportunity. Don't sit and dwell on the fact that you made this horrific mistake. Here's an opportunity to correct it. Here's, rather than sit around and mope about it, be depressed about it, here's an opportunity I hear you. I hear you. I, we we got we got to move. But Paul Paul was correct in the timeline of 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 the story. Paul got Paul is correct. And in the immediate aftermath, God tells Moses, "Still on the mountain, go down, Lechreid, go down. The people have sinned. I'm going to destroy them and rebuild from you." That's what God says in the immediate aftermath. You're you are also right that ultimately, after God promises that there's some path of rehabilitation, the path that God rolls out is the building of the tabernacle. Both are true, but in the immediate aftermath, God says nothing to talk about. There's no hope. There's no option. And that forces Moses to push the path. And that's what creates the real rebound. But I, I don't want to get stuck on this. We have to move on and discuss what is the power of the rebound? What is the power of the Baal Shuvah? And I'm going to explain it in a, in a, uni, in a bit of a unique way. Um, typically, we speak about, yeah, because the passion of return is stronger than, you know, like when you feel disconnected, you feel more inspired to be connected than if you were always connected. That's psychological and emotional um, angle on it. But I want to get into a, more of a, um, a spiritual angle, more of a, um, a divine angle. And, and hear me out for a second. Basically, we know the fundamental truth about, about Yiddishkeit, about Judaism, is the belief in Hashem Echad, in God is one. What does it mean, God is one? Um, even in the story of Elijah and, and, and the prophets of the Bible, what does it mean? That they were they were arguing over idols or monotheism, idolatry or monotheism. What does it mean? That they, that they believe, right? Achav and Isabel, Ahab and Jezebel, and the others, they believed in multiple deities. And then Elijah and authentic Judaism believes in one. And so what is this like golf? The lower the score, the better. It's like you believe in, in, in multiple. I believe in one. I'm better than you. Like, what does that even mean? So the, the true meaning of, of monotheism, Hashem Echad. It's not just one God as opposed to many gods. It means that there's oneness in everything. There's only one reality, which means when we think about good and evil, these are not two different realities. In other, in other um, religious doctrines, you know, evil has its, own, has its own force, a separate force, a separate power. In Judaism, even evil is all part of the God squad. It's all hired by God, right? It's like it's a force that God creates to oppose and whatever. So everything, everything is part of God's oneness. Everything is created by God intentionally. So just to very, very simply map this out. Something God creates and says, do this, right? God says, I'm creating this. 
do it. Some things God creates and says, I'm creating this, don't do it, right? God says this, engage in this, don't engage in. Which means that some things have a positive purpose and some things have a negative purpose. But let me state this a little bit differently. Some things purpose is realized by engaging with it and some things its purpose is realized by negating it or by not engaging. You with me on this? Does it make sense? Sort of, yeah. So God creates everything. It's all created by God and it's all intentional. There's no accidents. It's not like, oh, God's like, oh, I know what God says, OMG, whatever. God says, oh my, oh my word. Oh my word. How, oh my, huh? Oh my me. Like, how did this happen? Where did this come from? Right, shriek, like, ah, that's not what's going on. God is creating, God is creating everything and everything exists for a purpose. Some things have a positive purpose, a utilitarian purpose, use it. And some things have what we would call a negative purpose. Its purpose is for us to negate it or to deny it or to walk by it and to not engage in it. So God says, let's do very, very simply. I'm create, God, God creates the possibility for there to be houses of monotheistic worship and houses of polytheistic worship. And God says, okay, walk into those places and worship me. And when you see those places, what should you do? Walk by. Don't stop in. So why does it exist? Why does it exist? Not to be engaged in, but to be disengaged. Good. So that's typically how we understand. So again, everything serves a purpose. Everything is created by God, serves a purpose, speaks to God's unity, everything, everything, even the bad stuff. It's just that the good stuff is meant to be engaged with, and the bad stuff is meant to be disengaged with, not engaged with. Yeah? Okay. And that's how tzaddikim live their lives. Tzaddik, perfect person. Let me know when you find one. A tzaddik, but theoretically, a tzaddik, yeah, a tzaddik engages in goodness and disengages or doesn't engage with the negative stuff, right? So there's clarity, good, evil, black, white, everything's, everything's clear. We have clear boxes, clear categories. This stuff I'm going to work with, this stuff I'm going to ignore, shun, reject, walk away from. Great. What about the Baal what about the What about the one who's, uh, who's on the path of rebound? They've walk down the negative path they've tasted the forbidden fruit they've engaged with the stuff that should not be engaged with you with me on this and what's their power their power is and it's our power because we're all in this category what's that power this power is to take the stuff that is otherwise on the side of negativity and somehow bring it over to the side of positivity, not intentionally, because if you say I'm going to, I intend on doing this, then it's not going to work. As we said, if somebody says I'm going to sin and bring it up, it's not going to work. But if it already happened, in hindsight, if it already happened, I found myself somehow, some way, walking on the dark side. I don't know how. I took a wrong turn, and here I am now. Shuva means that I can elevate from this space, but not just from this space, with this space. With this energy, with this darkness, with this. Yeah, you with me on this? It's about elevating from this experience and bringing it also to God. Very simple, very simple. Let's talk about kosher, not kosher. So we say kosher is meant to be eaten. Non-kosher is meant to be left on the shelf. I'm going to ignore it. Good. And that's the way a tzaddik lives his life or her life. The tzaddik 
lives his or her life by eating the kosher and not eating, rejecting the non-kosher. And if somebody says, I'm going to eat the non-kosher and then utilize it for a higher purpose, we say, don't even try. You can't act of ashav. You can't say, I'm going to sin and then elevate it. It's not going to work. But what if the person didn't intend to elevate it? The person just intended to enjoy it, right? It wasn't, it wasn't that complicated. It really wasn't that, it really wasn't that strategic. It was simply, this looks good. I think I'm going to, I think I'm just going to, I think I'm just going to do it. And then it happens. Yeah. And now the person in that place says, you know what? I don't want this to be me. I don't want this to be my reality. I want to connect with Hashem. I want to get back. I want to return tshuva. So what happens? So all of the energy in that space, in that food, et cetera. Again, I'm just giving a simple example. All of that energy at the end of the day does rebound. That's the power of tshuva. That power, because it's that power from the dark, from the darkness of negativity it's that that's what's fueling the drive and thus the energy of that space is brought into a holy space okay so what does that mean for us very simply what it means is is that there are two ways of understanding how everything is divine the easier way the simple way is Everything is divine. Some things are holy. Some things are unholy. Some things are to be engaged with. Some things are to be not engaged with. And, and how does the thing that's forbidden fulfill its purpose? By not engaging with it. So its, its purpose is a negative purpose. Its purpose is non-engagement. That's the level of the tzaddik. The Baal Shuvah is able to, in retrospect, hindsight, not, not, not intentionally, but in hindsight, take, yeah, Take even the negative and lift it back up to holiness. From the rebound, the tshuva, from the space of negativity is able to lift it back up to a holy space. Which means that the forbidden, let's just call it the forbidden fruit, can actually also be united with Hashem and serve a positive purpose. Not just the negative purpose of rejection, but a positive purpose of engagement. But not intentional after the fact. And now that I've sufficiently lost everyone, I'm kidding. I don't know if I've lost everyone, right? All right. You still, you still on? Okay, good. So now we understand, huh? Yeah, exactly. Leave some breadcrumbs. Is there a sin that is so severe that you cannot uh, engage in tshuva? You're saying, is there something that's so dark and so yeah. nefarious yeah. that you can never lift up those sparks? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I think there may be a possibility to on, on, for everything. In other words, and what that means is that with tshuva, everything could play a positive role in creation, not just a negative a role by negation, as is typically understood, like the role of evil is to not be engaged with, but a positive role of engagement, not intentionally, but at the end, through tshuva, one can even elevate the unelevatable. The, the, and Tanya says, explains the words mutar and asur. Mutar means permitted, asur means forbidden. He says it's related to the idea of, of tied and untied. Mutar means also means untied. If something's not tied up. Then it's mutar, means the, the sparks are elevatable. Asur, forbidden, means the sparks, the, the potential in it is tied down, going into it on the front end. But on the back end, once it's already been utilized, Right. Once it's already been engaged with, if a person does truva, they can elevate even those unelevatable sparks back to Hashem. 
That's what it means. So I want to read to you this, this text. This is text eight. One text that will share this idea and hopefully clarify it. And then we're going to get back to the bulls and the conversation between the bull and Elijah. And this is a tremendous lesson, which we'll see in a moment. Text number eight. There are two ways of understanding God's unity. In other words, the oneness of God, how God is one with everything. Number one, negativity and evil poses no contradiction to God's unity in as much as it's not a real entity. Rather, it's a void, an absence of something. We demonstrate this by associating with negativity in a manner of rejection. In other words, one understanding is God created this item not to be utilized, but rather to not be utilized. God creates good. God creates evil. Why evil? It's a, it's a, it's a negative energy, and, I, and our job is to reject the negative energy. So it's serving a role, but its role is the inverse. It's like a negative role. Okay. Two, the spark of godliness that animates negativity and evil is clearly also one with God, despite the fact that so far it has been so distanced from God that it, that it also presents as evil. How is this possible? How is it possible that even evil has a spark of godliness that is positive? The purpose of the negativity and evil represented by the godly energy animating it is for it to be transformed to good and uplifted to holiness. How? You can't, do it. you can't just use it for good. It's evil. This is accomplished through tshuva, as I said before, to the point where past transgressions are transformed into merits where the godly energy is uplifted to holiness. There's a way to do tshuva. There's a way to do tshuva where you're lifting, you're transforming the past and the negative energy. The, and the negative energy that is untransformable can be transformable through tshuva. On a very simple level, if you think about, let's say, a relationship. Think about, um, we can give so many different examples, but think about somebody saying, yeah, in a relationship, I'm going to betray the commitment in the relationship, yeah, in order to get closer to my spouse, yeah, <laughs> terrible game to play, right? I'm going to mess up and betray them and then feel so bad about it that I'll be in love with them more than I started. Good idea, bad idea. Terrible idea. Do not do this. Do not do this. Bad idea. Do not try this at home or anywhere else. Okay, or anywhere else. Good, done. Next. Next option. But what if, what if somebody finds themselves in that, in, in, in that situation where they have unfortunately done something that was not, uh, not true to the relationship, true to the commitment, and they're so brokenhearted by it, they're so shaken to the shook into the core. Yeah, they're so rocked that now they're committed more than ever before to their to their beloved. One can say that this was the most positive catalyst of the relationship. Now, I'm not could could happen. Could happen. It has to happen. Hold on. All we have to all we have to say is it could happen. That's enough of an opening to run with this idea. So here's the deal. The possibility to, for this betrayal, was that good or evil? How would you define the possibility of the betrayal, this, this, op, this opportunity, good or evil? Evil. Should you say, let me try it so I can get closer to my... No, 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 we're all on the same page. So typically it's evil. And, and, and why, is it exi why would God create the possibility for me to reject it? It doesn't exist for a positive purpose. It's negative. And my role vis-a-vis -vis it is to say, not going to happen. Not happening. Out. Forget about it. Not going to do it. That's the perspective. That's the perspective one. 
But if you think about it from this perspective, that there's a difference between good and evil, because the good is desirable, it's positive, and the negative is negative, and it, it serves an unpurpose, not a purpose, an unpurpose purpose. But if you think about it through the lens of tshuva, somebody already fell into that, and now can somehow come flying out of it with a greater strength than before, turns out they now, that is part of their rebound, or that's what fuels the rebound with a greater force and greater commitment to their beloved. Great. I mean, sorry, <laughs> great. But now what's happened is the potential that the, the energy of that experience has now been converted into something positive. Turns out it now serves a positive purpose. You can't do it intentionally, but on the back end, you can do it. And this is the message of Elijah to the bull. The bull is saying, look, there's two of us, me and my twin. Remember the bull, the twin bulls? Yeah. And one was to, for God and one was for the Baal. And the Baal bull says, oh, you gotta be kidding me. First of all, maybe this bull had a complex. It's like, always my brother, you know, always gets the better, you know, this is bull, huh? Right. Yeah, yeah. So my mom always loved that one more than me. I've always got the better, what do bulls eat? I don't even know. Whatever, always got the better food, just for lack of better, lack of accurate terminology. Anyway, so, and now the bull's like, oh, great. So my brother, bull, right? Brother, bull, serves a positive purpose in God's plan. He's going to be elevated as a sacrifice to God. And my, my, my purpose is to be rejected by the idol, is, is to be rejected. So I, I understand, Elijah, thank you very much. I serve a purpose to be rejected. How does that make me feel? I exist in this world so that everyone walks by and says, ew, you, no, thank you. Th thank you very much. This is not called equal purpose. That serves a positive purpose. And I serve rejection purpose. That doesn't feel good. Right, you exist. God created you. God, God, there's a purpose. You're here for a purpose. So, what's my purpose? What do I do? Oh, no, 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 no. Everyone walks by you and, and like says, ooh, and walks away and runs away. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Lovely. But that's not what Elijah says. Elijah says to the bull, You serve a positive purpose, not just a negative purpose, not an, an anti purpose purpose. You serve a positive purpose. And what is it? When everyone sees, when the people, and the people knew this, the people knew that when Elijah said to them, choose between God and the Baal, the people were still, they were quiet. That means that part of them is like, I don't know, maybe the Baal. Maybe we like the Baal. And the people, and so the people were aligned with the Baal on some level. And he says, how long are you going to dance at two weddings? So they were like here and there. And the people saw that the prophets of the Baal could not summon the fire, what did they say? Hashem hu alakim. God is God. That was the tshuva. That was them realizing. And the power of Hashem hu alakim, Hashem, the clarity that they had was produced because of their previous ambivalence. Are you with me? The power of their conviction was born of their previous confusion. Which means that the bull, the other bull, the opposing bull turned out to be the greatest force, part of the great force of the rebound. And so Elijah says to the bull, Bulichka, Bubala Bulala, Bulala, says Bubala Bulichka, says, Little bull, little bull, you have nothing to worry about. Your purpose is not simply rejection, your purpose is inspiration.
You're not just existing to be rejected. You're existing to be inspiring just like your brother Bo. He He's going to be inspiring that Hashem is real. You're inspiring that Hashem is real. Because there's the tshuva potential, the latent tshuva potential that lies even within the forces of evil. And this brings us to the takeaway of today's class. It's easy to tell ourselves that, or it's easy to, you know, construct a worldview of, you know, good and evil and right and wrong and, you know, light and darkness. This is good. This is kosher. This is right. And this is bad. And this needs to be rejected. It's easy to create that construct in our minds. The real question of life is what happens and it will inevitably happen. What happens when we find ourselves fraternizing with the enemy? What happens then? It's like, oh my gosh, one day I wake up, wait a second, where am I? I don't remember getting here, but look where I am now. And I don't mean we don't know how we got there. We know very well how we got there, but I'm just being kind. Right now we wake up and like, oh, here I am. The question is, how do we view it then? Do we say that it's done, it's finished, we're over, we're done, we hit the bottom, we can't get back up? Or do we tell ourselves there is the possibility of rebounding? The Talmud says that God facilitated, God orchestrated the whole idea of the golden calf in order to give them and us, then, them then and us now, the path of tshuva. And what is the path of tshuva? It's the path of realizing the potential of the darkest, sorry, the deepest, darkest, most embedded divine sparks, the divine sparks that are embedded in the lowest things, the things that otherwise should be totally rejected, but can be absolutely flipped for good in a process known as shuva after we found ourselves in an undesirable place. And so this can be inspiring to us all, not to inspire us to intentionally commit some sort of negative act in order to realize the power of the rebound. That's a very bad idea. We would never tell, tell a spouse, hey, you know, you should try this because there's nothing, nothing that solidifies your relationship like betraying it. That would never make sense. That would never make sense, right? But finding ourselves on the other side of the law, so to speak, right, can inspire us with this teaching inspires to recognize the, the, the reason why we're here, why we're there, there here, wherever we find ourselves. The reason is to bring the deepest sparks back up, is to achieve a greater connection to Hashem. That's why sin exists. And so my friends in life, there's two ways to look at things. Either that certain things are positive, certain things are negative, or that everything has a positive, that everything has potential. Even the circumstances of my shame even they have purpose even my betrayal and my shame and my vice and all of this stuff not excusing it but once it's there how do i i can lift it up and bring a positivity and so this is what i wrote in the the general email today the idea of post-traumatic growth we know about ptsd post-traumatic stress disorder i think that's what it is uh right ptsd but now nowadays psychologists are talking about p t g ptg post traumatic growth growing from trauma how do i grow from trauma when i realize that there are deep sparks even in this experience 
And that's even the, even the trauma that I self-impose, even the trauma that's born of my bad decisions, I can still elevate from them. I can still achieve a higher potential from these mistakes. And this is the lesson of the golden calf. This is the lesson that Elijah eloquently conveys to the bull, the bull of the Baal. And so my friends, let the bull of the Baal remind us that there's nothing beyond repair. There's no opportunity that can't be elevated to God. And we don't, some, some opportunities we don't look for, but when they present themselves to us, the path is clear. Nothing is re, nothing should remain separate from God and from purpose. And this is divine unity. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for Torah studies. I hope this made sense. I hope this resonated. All right. Now feel free to open up your mics. And thank you, Elio. Thank you, Elijah. Okay, yes. Elijah. All right. Questions, comments, questions, comments. Jump in. Shuva. Yeah. Like Elio's question is what if somebody messed up, did the work in in repairing it and returning, and then messed up again? There's a word for that. Human? Human being, yeah. Life. <laughs> Reality. Yeah. It's why we have Yom Kippur every year. It's why we say Tachnon, the prayer of penitence, every single day, twice a day. Because in case we thought we were scot free in the morning, there's an there's the afternoon to worry about, right? There's there's still more opportunities. <laughs> I still have more energy. I can still do more, right? There's still more potential. Yeah, it's like it's like um, the optimist, right? The optimist and the pessimist. What does the pessimist say? It can't get any worse. The optimist says, "Oh oh oh yes it can, right? <laughs> oh yes it can. Watch. Oh yes." Um, yeah, so that's human. It's human. It just means, but God is infinitely patient. Erech apayim. That's what he says. 13 attributes of, of divine mercy. Hashem is erech apayim, which translates into long faced, but it means God has a lot of patience, a lot of patience, which is good because yes. Lord knows, which we're talking about. God knows that we need, we need a lot of, um, understanding mm -hmm. and compassion. If only we were so nice to others. Oh, that's another class. Oh, that's another class. Could we even conceive of giving, of granting the same love, compassion, respect, dignity, rope that God gives us? Could we even conceive of what that would look like for others? Man, we get, sh we get short with people really fast. It's like, you did this, you said this, out, out of my life, you're out, forget it. You're sorry, sorry, it doesn't matter. Not after this. And, and then we turn to God and like, God, forgive me. I'm not sure if I mean it, but I really could use this uh, promotion. It's like, the, the um, I'm not gonna say hypocrisy, I just did. The um, inconsistency, the inconsistency, shall we say is worthy of reflection, which is, again, it's a different lesson, but it's still a worthy lesson. If we want God to keep on trusting us, God's, we're like, God, trust me. Trust me. I can, I can come back from this. Trust me. God's like, okay, I trust you. All right. Let's, let's see what we do with others. I mean, let's, right? Can we be so bold to grant others a few chances? We should. We should.
All right. Questions, comments? Sometimes. <laughs> Not always. Depen depends on the situation. Right. Yeah. But listen, but God also understands that. God also understands that his patience is infinite and ours is finite. It's not, it's not like God doesn't know who he created. God knows our limitations better than we know ours. Trust me. So God, like the, the, the notion that God is like looking at us and being like, mm, 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 can't believe it. God's like, I was waiting, like it took so long. Like I said before about the golden calf, like, all right, good. Now I have to tell you that I, you can't come back, but that's only to see if you really want to come back. That's all like, that's all to see if it's really coming from you. Is it real? Are you really rebounding or is it just, you know, anyway, all, all these important details. Today's class, I, I, I know it got a little bit, you know, God's unity, divine unity, two different ways of understanding negative or positive. You get a little philosophical, but at the core, it's about, it's so it's about real life straight up real life it's like do we do we see the potential right do we see the potential in even the negativity sometimes <laughs> sometimes rarely but sometimes all right thank you all uh don't forget tomorrow night tomorrow night we have a zoom event zoom only uh, fellow from Israel, Josh Evan Chen. Oh, Evan Chen, not Chen. I'm pronouncing his name wrong this whole time. He told me his name is Evan Chen. Chen, huh? Thirty, yeah, the thirty-six. So he's gonna. The, the topic is hidden secrets of Israel. He's a professional tour guide and, and an educator in Israel, and he's gonna be taking us on a virtual tour. Very cool. Um, behind some of the hidden sites of Israel, places that you could not visit, even if you were in Israel right now. Like the Carters are, by the way, my concern. Oh, yeah. So even if you were on the ground, boots on the ground in Israel, you could not see these places. He's going to take us there virtually and explain some of the secrets of these places and then tie it into like 36 centigum. And it's very, very cool conversation. So that's all tomorrow night. It's free, free event open to all sponsorship opportunities are available if you'd like to help sponsor. And he also just wrote a book called the 36. So if you want to copy the book, what time is this? 8 p.m. Yeah. For him, it's like 3 a.m. 3 a.m. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's taking one for the team here. I mean, he's like really, yeah, he's dedicated. That is. I wish I could make it out. 3 a.m. It's, uh, it's rough. Anyway, um, well, thank God for the day of rest. It's going to be about an hour, hour and 15 minutes, like 8 to 9.15-ish, approximately. And then Sunday, of course, we have the concert event right here. Um, Judy's in the soundtrack, Hasidic music dinner at 6, followed by the musical experience. That's this Sunday, February 20th. The 21st is after the fire, another Zoom event. So we have Zoom, in-person Zoom. We're sandwiching things. Hope y'all will join us. huh? After the fire, yeah, she's in Boston. So it's, okay. it's a Zoom. What is the concert? 6 p.m. 6 is the dinner, 6.30 is the concert. Right here. I think Ray has a question. Right here. Oh, yeah. Yes. Who's got a question? No? Ray, you have a question? Hold on one second, one second, one second. You got to unmute. You got to unmute. Always a catch. 
Hold on. No, I don't think I can. Hold on, hold on. You're still muted. I don't think I can. No. Nope, still not working. Here, I'm hitting ask. To, uh, uh, yeah, just respond to that and you should get it. Yes. You got it. Um, yeah, before I was going to ask you uh, about the story of Eliyahu and Hannah. Yes. I mean, like he, his perception. Yeah. Of- well, that was actually Ailey. That was actually Ailey. Oh, the, um, <laughs> Ailey, the high priest. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, different, different, uh, different story. Yes, it is different. Well, it wasn't in this Parsha then. I guess not. No, 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 not this one. Not this and one. And not, oh, yeah. okay. It was different after, but also, also very important one. Yeah. I, I just wanted to. All right, good. Add, good, good, good. Ari, I just wanted to add one little note of interest that um, the name Isabel or Isabella is Isabel. Interesting. That's the exact biblical equivalent. Interesting. Queen Isabella wasn't very nice to the Jews, and neither was. There you go. Yeah, that's an interesting connection. Yeah, Isabella and Ferdinand were not nice to the Jews. That is is for sure. I guess it, historically, connections. All right, we'll sign off. Lila, oh, so Rosita, go. Jump in. You got the final word. The name in Spanish correctly said is Isabel y Fernando. Okay. Nice. <laughs> Those are the names. Yeah. Are, yes. I'm not going to get it right. I'm just oh, saying. Isabella, no Ferdinand. Fernando and Isabel. Uh-huh. La Catolica. The, that's how they, they were in the history from Spain. It sounds so much nicer when you say it. I'm not, I'm not, it's never going to get like that. I'm, I'm like, I mean, I can't say never, but it's, Thank there's you. like a poetic, well, all right. I'm, I'll, I'll work on it. And it's all right. Nice. It sounds so much more like the Hebrew, too. That's right. Yeah. Because it's phonetic. Yeah. Yeah. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Lila told everybody. We'll see y'all soon.